3: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com Persia. Hello everyone, I'm Trevor Cully, and this is the History of Persia, episode 39, The Rise of Achaemenes. Let's talk about girls. Well, not just girls, though young women and children will definitely make appearances today. We are also going to talk about the aged women and middle-aged mothers who wielded some extraordinary political and economic power. Which brings me to the title. Mostly, it's just a pun for me to laugh at. The id in dynasty names like Achaemenid or Sassanid or Seleucid comes from a Greek suffix that means son of. One of the most famous uses of the title is probably Atreides in the Iliad, referring to the sons of Atreus. Well, it is something like the feminine version of that. It essentially means daughter of. So... The Achaemenaises are the daughters of Achaemenes, or put simply, Achaemenid women. Maybe it's only funny to this one podcaster, but it is still my show. It has been more than 30 years since the conspiracy of seven Persian nobles assassinated Bardia in his bedroom, and Darius was declared king. That's more than half the entire history of the Persian Empire up to this point so it should be no surprise that things have been changing, politically and socially. Our first stop on exploring the developing empire in this period is going to be the royal family. The last time I really talked about the royals as a family unit was all the way back in episode 14, Princes, Princesses, Kings, and Queens, which covered the family of Cyrus the Great on the eve of his death. Temporally, that wasn't all that long ago. It was barely time for a new generation to appear on the scene, but it sure feels like a long time ago. In the 25 narrative episodes since, Cambyses rose to power, conquered Egypt, got usurped by Bardia, and died. Bardia reigned in Persia, may have been replaced by an evil twin, pissed off the nobility, and was assassinated. Darius fought a decade-long civil war from Egypt to India, conquered the Indus Valley and southeastern Europe, then fought the first extended war with the Yona on his western frontier. Not to mention all of the discussions of religion, culture, and geography. And just as much has been happening at a smaller scale in the royal household. It helps that we're in the period of the Greek wars now, and have access to all of the various nobles and princes mentioned by Herodotus as generals during those wars. Their presence in Greece shed light on minor nobles that we might not have known about if the wars had not been fought. Still, there is little doubt that Darius's family was much larger and more complex than that of Cyrus. In Cyrus's time... We know about no siblings, no surviving parents, two sons, maybe two wives, and three daughters. From Cambyses and Bardia combined, we can see no sons, five wives, and one daughter. Their mother died before their father, and two of their three sisters were included in the count of wives. We hear nothing about cousins in the Taispid period, and the only in-laws we are certain of are the fathers of Cyrus's wives, so compare this to Darius, whose mother, father, and grandfather were all living during his reign. We know of five or six wives married to Darius, and between them we can account for sixteen children, twelve sons, and four daughters. Each daughter has a corresponding husband, and we know several of the son's wives. Between all of them, we can account for many grandchildren, but we'll get to them later in their own time. We can also count three sisters and three brothers for Darius. Like his daughters, we can identify each of Darius's sisters with a husband, and between the siblings, I counted five nieces and nephews at least five who aren't counted somewhere else on this list, as well as a few great-nephews. This is to say nothing for his cousins, who spiral out into the whole dynasties of satraps, two of which tie directly into the house of Macedon at different points, which spirals into its own gigantic mess. The era of Darius and his son Xerxes, represents one of the widest and most complicated points in the Achaemenid family tree. Which is why I'm planning for this to take at least two episodes. I had to break it up somehow, and I decided the best way to do it was to split the royal family into its male and female sections. With the exception of the ultimate power of the kings themselves, you can hardly say that one sex was more important or powerful in Persian society. They certainly took on different roles, which contributes heavily to a male bias in the available sources, but it would be wrong to say that men were more important or even more powerful just because they had the outward-facing political and military positions. As we'll see, women were powerful economic and political players inside the empire, just in a less face-forward and aggressive way. So that said, ladies first. Especially in the context of this discussion of the royal court and internal affairs, we might actually have more information about individual women. I think we really have to start this discussion with a bit about the role of women in the Achaemenid hierarchy in general before I can discuss those individuals, though. One thing I always find extremely interesting when comparing ancient societies is the wide range of roles and responsibilities that fell to women. Generally, there are a lot more options than we see for men. And bear in mind today that I'm mostly discussing the upper-class noble and royal women. The social situation was often very different for the bulk of the population. Men, all across the ancient world tended to fill the roles of warriors and political administrators, whatever that meant in a given society. But depending on where we look, women could be just about anything. Even today, Athens, Rome, and biblical Judea provide most people's primary frame of reference for the ancient world. All three of those societies prescribed a distinctly second-class role to women, keeping them out of political, military, sexual, and economic decisions whenever possible, even when those decisions directly affected the women. Though not always effective in practice, that was at least the ideal reflected by ancient authors in all three of those places. As usual, we don't really have any detailed descriptive texts from Persian authors, but we do have a ton of Persian sources. The Persepolis fortification and treasury archives provide us with so much information about the women of the Achaemenid world, and they can be supplemented and complemented with additional archives, like those of the Marashu banking family in Babylon. Then, of course, we do have sources from Athens, Rome, and Judea to consider as well. Traditionally, the biblical and classical sources have received a lot of attention— But in the last 30 years or so, they have taken a distinct backseat role, and that's more or less how I'm going to approach them today. Right off the bat, we're facing all of the usual translation issues and then some. When translating from one language to another, we really prefer to have as many words as possible with direct one-to-one equivalents in each language. If you've been listening to the podcast for this long, you probably already know this isn't always or even often the case. This is a tale as old as language in general, and we find the same problem in any information transmitted between two languages. This really muddies the water in a Achaemenid history, because at any given point we are working with at least five languages. There's English, which I'm obviously using to present this to you, There's Old Persian, the language of the Achaemenids and their nobility. There's Elamite, the primary language used in most of the Persepolis tablets. Akkadian, the primary language of Babylon and the archives there. And finally, there's Greek, the language of most of our narrative histories. Plus, we often have to deal with Latin from later Roman authors that used Greek sources. And Aramaic as the common language of the Persian Empire. None of those languages have one-to-one translations for every word or even most words. That's a big problem when we're trying to describe something as complex and dependent on context as social hierarchies. In preparing for this episode, I wrote down 27 words from Persian, Elamite, Akkadian, and Greek to try and make sense of all of this. You don't need to know all of them to follow this, and I probably won't mention all of them, but I just want to make it clear how hard this can be to follow. Normally, in English at least, we try to describe the women of the royal house with one of three terms. Queens, princesses, or concubines. All of the other upper-class women of the empire who aren't related to the royal family usually get lumped together as noble women. The problem is we don't have a direct translation for any of those in Achaemenid Persian, Elamite, or Akkadian. The closest we get in Old Persian is kasharastana, which basically means royal wife, which we might understand as queen. But that word carries a lot of context in English, which we'll get into in a minute. The Elamite Persepolis tablets make up the majority of our sources, And the most common word they use is dukshish. That means royal woman. It's a catch-all term for every woman in the king's immediate family, whether by marriage to him or one of his sons or by birth. If there's any word to remember today, that's definitely the one. Dukshish. All other noble women are called irti, which literally just means wife in Elamite common women are usually called mutu which translates literally as mother and the other elamite phrase to note is pakri Sunki, or daughter of the king that's the literal translation so you could just translate it as princess but it wasn't a title it didn't have a political rank or anything like that it was just descriptive today we're specifically talking about the duke the royal women at least That covers just about everyone we're talking about today, so far as we can tell. I think we can all grasp the idea of the king's mother, aunts, sisters, and daughters easily enough. Those are all relationships that most of us have to navigate on a regular basis in the modern world. I suspect fewer of us have to deal with concubines all that often. I'd love for this to be the point where I offer an easy, straightforward definition of what a concubine is, but it's never that easy. Our primary evidence for Achaemenid concubines comes from Greek sources and the biblical book of Esther. The Greek sources discuss a variety of concubines, especially after the death of Artaxerxes I, Darius' grandson, Esther is one part ancient Judean romance novel, and one part historic epic about defeating an anti-Jewish prejudice. For a variety of reasons, scholars are pretty confident that the version of Esther we have today was written down a couple of centuries after the fall of the Achaemenid dynasty. But the important thing is that Esther, the main character, starts out as a concubine and then gets promoted to royal wife. I'll talk about Esther in the 2021 holiday special for Purim next year, in a lot more detail. The trick with Esther is that being written down a century or two after Alexander means that it probably was influenced by Greek ideas too. So we're still grappling with the Greek idea of a concubine. There's no 100% family-friendly way to say it, So I'll just be blunt, this is basically a debate about the legal status of different women that the king of kings got to have sex with. The 4th century BCE political philosopher Demosthenes described three different relationships that Athenian men had with women. They had wives who produced legitimate heirs, prostitutes for pleasure, and concubines for, quote, everyday cares. Now, there are way too many deep-seated issues about Athenian society just in that sentence, but let's face the real problem here. Legitimate heirs and pleasure are both very straightforward explanations. But what the hell does everyday cares mean, Demosthenes? Well, I think the vagueness of Demosthenes' explanation kind of points to the fact that the Greeks didn't have a strict definition either, But here's scholars' best guess. Wealthy Greek men had to legally marry certain women for all sorts of social and political reasons, but that doesn't always mean they like their wives. Concubines were the women that a man had actual affection and romance with, but couldn't marry for whatever reason. So when Greeks are talking about the great king's concubines, they seem to mean women that the king has an ongoing personal and sexual relationship with, but cannot or chooses not to legally marry. That seems kind of straightforward, at least. Royal marriages directly influence who becomes the next king, and which families have influence on the king politically. In cultures all over human history, that has been pretty heavily regulated. Unfortunately, the issue of concubines gets more complicated by other sources. The Book of Esther tells us the story of a concubine becoming the king's wife when he dismisses or maybe divorces the previous queen. So the authors obviously thought that concubines could be married. The problem is, Esther frames the royal marriage as monogamous, and none of the characters, especially the women, line up with known royal wives from other more contemporary sources. It directly contradicts almost every other source for Achaemenid marriage practices. So we probably shouldn't put too much stock in the story of Esther when discussing the marriage eligibility for concubines. Then there's the problem of multiple Greek sources referencing how every king had 300 concubines who had to enter the palace as virgins. It's very possible that this is just rumor and myth-making. Greek sources loved to paint the Achaemenid court as a decadent sexual palace. But the story of 300 virginal concubines comes up just a little too often for it to not have some kind of basis in reality. If it does, then the most common explanation I have seen is that the Greeks interpreted women in the palace with some sort of ceremonial or religious role as concubines. In that case... It may be that the Greeks labeled far more women as concubines than actually merit the title. Nonetheless, there were also definitely women who had a sexual relationship with the king without being his wife. Herodotus mentions concubines when discussing Princess Nitetis from Egypt, which I discussed way back in episode 16. Later sources, like Theseus and Xenophon, discuss a large number of concubines and contrast them with the king's wives. So that, kind of circuitously, brings me to a discussion of the king's wives. I said earlier that one of the flaws in Esther is that it portrays the king of Persia as monogamous, as in married to just one woman. That may be how they did things in Second Temple Judea, but it's pretty clear that the king of kings often had more than one wife. There are definitely a few scholars that debate this, suggesting that we don't have a full understanding of how the Persians defined a legal marriage, but they are in the minority. Darius very clearly had multiple wives, as several of them are discussed in different documents in both Persia and Greece. Herodotus clearly suggests that Cambyses had several wives. Plutarch says that Artaxerxes II had at least two, though other sources seem like he may have been talking about the two wives of Artaxerxes III. Either way, at least two. Even if there aren't multiple wives known for every king, it was clearly something that happened. So what made these royal wives more legitimate for legal purposes? In general, it seems like they had to be Persian. If we make an exception for Cyrus the Great, who was clearly operating in exceptional circumstances as he conquered and secured the entire empire, every royal wife we hear about is Persian. Even when Cyrus the Great in Theseus has a Median wife, Media is generally considered pretty close to Persian. That seems to have been the rule. Likewise, Most of the concubines we know by name are Babylonian, so that probably points to the fact that Babylonians might not have been eligible for marriage. So wives are Persians the king has a relationship with, and are probably politically motivated, while concubines are non-Persians who have a relationship with the king. There is scant evidence for their lives, but it seems like some kings may have taken Women as their concubines for political purposes when they were from other regions. That's what Herodotus suggests Cambyses had planned for Nitetus of Egypt before finding out she wasn't actually Pharaoh's daughter. The reason for this is almost certainly a desire to make sure that the legally legitimate sons, and thus potential heirs to the throne, were fully Persian and not influenced by any provincial cultural and political ties in their mother's families. It seems that it was crucial for the mother of the king to be Persian. Speaking of the mother of the king, that brings me to the issue of queenship in ancient Persia. As I said, there was no title for specific ranks of royal women like we see in the British royal family today. They were all just dukshish, or described by their relationship to the king king's wife, daughter of the king, etc. That said, we have a lot of sources that absolutely describe some Achaemenid women as queens, or rather, basilissa. Basilissa, as listeners of the history of Byzantium might have guessed, is the feminine form of basileos, the Greek word for king, i.e. a queen. Interesting to note, given the conversation today, That "issa" is a suffix borrowed as a way to feminize some words in Latin. And when Latin evolved into Old French, that was retained and passed into English. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the U.S., I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program, after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years, and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. It was used, for example, to create a feminine form of the word prince as princess. Not strictly relevant to our bit of the ancient world, but an interesting connection, I think. When you get into the nitty gritty things in English, we have all sorts of queens. There are queens regnant, who actually hold legal political power in their own name. Queens regent, who hold legal political power on behalf of a younger relative who isn't old enough to govern themselves. Queens consort, who are queens only because they are married to a king who has legal power, queens-dowager, who are the widows of deceased kings, and queen-mothers, who are the mother of the reigning monarch. In the 220 or so years of Achaemenid imperial history, there was neither a queen-regnant or a queen-regent, all evidence points to a highly patriarchal system of inheritance and political leadership. So neither is really surprising. I don't even think there was ever an opportunity for a queen regent anyway. I think all of the heirs were adults. Simultaneously, there were and were not queen's consort and queen's dowager. I'll get into that more in a moment, but it depends on how we understand those titles in a polygamous system. What there definitely were, though, were queen mothers. Everyone's got a mother. Cambyses and Bardia seem like they may be the only ones whose mother, Cassandene, was dead before they came to power. Interestingly, official Persian documents like the Persepolis archives say very little about the mothers of the king while the Greek sources have an awful lot to say about them. According to the Greeks, the queen mother exerted phenomenal political influence in her son's court, and often competed for prominence and influence with the king's favorite or primary wife. This archetype, and there's definitely a bit of archetypical stereotyping at play with all Greek authors, really begins with a tossa the mother of Xerxes and daughter of Cyrus the Great. But the same dynamic plays out repeatedly across different sources and time periods. The Queen Mother was supposedly able to dictate and could certainly influence royal policy. Part of this is probably spawned from a Greek habit of trying to make the great kings seem impotent and controlled by women but part of it must have been influenced by reality for the motif to reappear as often and consistently as it does. Regardless of whatever exaggerated details Herodotus, Theseus, or Plutarch might layer onto the Queen Mothers, it appears that they held the most highly respected place of any woman at court regardless of their actual political power. The most interesting example of the queen mother's stock character to me comes from the Athenian play The Persians by Aeschylus. The play is a dramatization of Xerxes' court in the time of the second Persian invasion of Greece. Aeschylus' portrayal of Xerxes' mother is often cited in reference to Atossa specifically, which makes sense given that she was in fact his mom. But Maria Brosius points out that there is something odd. Aeschylus never mentions Atossa by name. The first evidence for her name in Greek comes from Hellenicus of Lesbos a couple of decades later. The whole play just calls her Mother of the King. Brosius argues convincingly that Aeschylus was actually portraying a caricature of the powerful, controlling, and cruel queen mother, a stereotype that his audience already associated with Persia. Of course, any queen mother must be a queen dowager, right? Outside of a couple of examples, like Darius's own coup against Bardia, the only way she became mother of the king is when her husband died and stopped being king himself. Well, both dowager and consort kind of assume that the king's wife held some kind of official office while he was alive. Not only do we not have evidence for that, with every single woman in the Achaemenid house just called Shish, but it's not clear how that would work with multiple wives. For several generations of Achaemenid kings, we only know the name of one wife, she was the mother of the next king, and it's very easy for modern writers to label her the primary wife of whichever king and treat her as queen. In some cases, that may have been exactly how it worked. But what about other situations, especially earlier ones? Cambyses married several of his sisters, and historians have identified Atossa as his primary wife, partly because of her later fame. But he took a different sister-wife, who Theseus called Roxane, to Egypt and had a stillborn son with her. That kind of makes Roxane sound like the primary wife. And what about Darius's situation, where the sons of two different wives will soon be competing for the throne, and a third wife is identified as the king's favorite? At least with those early kings, the role of primary wife if the Persians even thought in those terms, seems to have been fluid in a way that our surviving records do not fully explain. So we've covered the Duke Shish as concubines, queens, and queen mothers. But what about the sisters and daughters of kings? Well, in most of Persian history, anyone who was one of those was usually the other, at least as a half-sister. They are frankly the ones we understand the least because less is said about the daughters of kings than their wives and mothers. Politically, it was their duty to forge alliances with the Persian noble families through marriage. Likewise, many Persian kings married the daughters of those noble families for the same reasons. Uniformly, when we hear about the daughters and sisters of kings, it is in the context of marriage. Many of them married into the families of powerful satraps or noble officials. In some cases, we have enough information to guess why the king wanted to forge that connection. Other times, all we're left with is a passing reference. Many times throughout Achaemenid history, we hear about a king marrying his own sister or half-sister. That was just as much to secure a political alliance, or at least political security, as any marriage to any other clan. Cambyses' motives are unclear, and chalked up to legendary bouts of madness by Herodotus, but we might guess that he married his sisters to limit the number of competing royal bloodlines in his young empire. Bardia, or Gomata, supposedly married all of Cambyses' wives to secure his own legitimacy after deposing his brother. In later generations, we'll hear about at least two more sibling marriages for similar reasons, and even a more dubious father-daughter arrangement. In every case, it was to secure some kind of political security. So far, I've talked a lot about the political role of women, but that only scratches the surface. The Achaemenid Duxish had influential social and economic roles as well, To understand either, many of us probably have to get rid of some of our preconceptions of Persian women. The first, biggest, and most important is our understanding of the word harem. Harem comes from Arabic and was used to describe the women's quarters of palaces in the Islamic world, most famously the Ottoman Empire. In that context, The popular Western idea of a harem as this place of beautiful women secluded and hidden from the world for the sexual pleasure of the king is complete fiction. Even in the Ottoman Empire, where the women of the royal palace really were secluded and kept out of the public eye, it was all of the women. The sultan's wives, mothers, sisters, servants, and other women in his house lived in the harem. And frankly, that's how most things described as harems have worked in history. Many cultures had a separate area of the palace for women to live in, for a variety of reasons. And yes, those reasons often included controlling who had access to the women and who the women had access to themselves. The thing is, that's not how the Achaemenid system worked. There were areas of royal palaces that the Greeks described as gunaikinos, meaning women's quarters, the word we usually translate as harem. But these were just living quarters in the palace and may not have been as exclusively female as the Greeks thought they were. It's probable that the so-called harem connected directly to the living quarters where all of the men stayed, too. Greek sources that explicitly discuss the lifestyle of Persian women suggest that Persian, much like Athenian women, were deliberately secluded and kept out of public life. However, that even contradicts other Greek sources, sometimes the same Greek sources, which make passing references to women participating in feasts, court life, and even hunting. That's to say nothing of all of the administrative records from Persepolis and Babylon that make it clear that there were common women and noble women alike participating in commerce, manual labor, religion, and all sorts of public life very openly. So where does the confusion come from? It seems that a Caymanid society, in direct contrast with modern Western society, placed a lot of social value on not being seen by the common people. It was considered strange and eccentric when one of the duchies traveled with the curtains of her carriage open to the streets so that she could greet the common people. Likewise, later kings cultivated an image of being almost completely unapproachable. It wasn't because women were socially lesser but because it was a sign of status that you could afford to travel and live in a way where you were almost invisible to the average person. It probably created a kind of mystique and intrigue around the nobles and royals of the empire. In a similar vein, the dukshish were not confined to the palace by any stretch, The Persepolis tablets contain many references to the expenses and provisions of the wives of both Darius himself and several of his nobles as they traveled around the empire. So despite the dedicated section of the palace, the Greek word gunaikinos, and some of the outdated Orientalist tropes, the Achaemenid system doesn't bear much of a resemblance to either the Ottoman harem or the fetishized version from popular fiction and art. Despite that, I agree with Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones in his book King and Court in Ancient Persia. We don't need to stop using the word harem when talking about the collective of royal women and their living space in the Achaemenid palace. The word is a readily available term that has already been used in a lot of literature. We just need to provide some context for what harem means in a Achaemenid history, just like we need to provide context for what queen, princess, or concubine means. But the whole point of this is that royal women weren't always away in the harem. So where else were they? In a few cases, especially with royal daughters, we hear about them traveling with their husbands. Presumably, they lived with those noblemen at whatever palaces, fortresses, or estates they lived in. In other cases, we hear about Achaemenid noblewomen and royal wives managing their own estates and palaces. According to the Murashu Archive, the Persepolis Tablets, and a few other examples, Royal women controlled estates with hundreds of servants and peasant workers that produced vast amounts of produce and other resources, and visited them regularly. In fact, royal women visiting these estates might have served a legitimate political and domestic social purpose for the Achaemenid government. While the king traveled between Persepolis and Babylon and Susa and Ecbatana, making a sort of circuit around the core of the empire, his wives weren't always with him. Some of them would be traveling to their own estates, in many of the same regions, but not necessarily the same exact cities. It's entirely possible that the regular transit of royal family members across this core section of the empire was used to enforce a sort of constant royal presence, even if the king himself was staying in Babylon for a while. One of his wives might be managing and traveling between several estates in Parsa, reinforcing the presence of the royal family even when the king was away. To fully understand these women and their estates, it's time to get specific. Who were the Duke Shish of Darius's family specifically? There's no best way to do this so I'm just going to sort of weave my way through the female part of the family tree here, making sure to point out how each woman is related. It helps that there are no documented concubines during Darius's reign. That's not to say they didn't exist, I'm sure they did, but nobody ever wrote anything down about a concubine of Darius the Great. For the moment, I'm just going to breeze past their sons and husbands and give most of them more attention in the next couple of episodes when I talk about the men of the family on their own. The easiest royal woman to just breeze past at this point in the story, and maybe any point now that I think about it, is one of Darius's sisters, known only from a story in Herodotus that he tells about the royal court of Xerxes. This sister married a nobleman named Theospes, and they had a son called Seaspes. Apparently, Seaspes assaulted another noblewoman, and his mother convinced Xerxes, her nephew, to punish him with exile instead of execution. I'll talk more about Seaspes some other time, but that's just about all we know of this first sister from Darius. The next set of dukeshish that we don't really need much attention for are the three daughters mentioned by Herodotus during the Ionian Revolt. I mentioned them myself in episode 33, Revenge of the Persians. We don't know which of Darius' wives was their mother. These three princesses are only known because we hear that their husbands were the generals in charge of Anatolia during the Persian offensive, Himayas, Dorises, and Otanes. Of the three, only the wife of Otanes merits really any attention. When I introduced the three Persian generals sent to quell the revolt in Ionia, I said that there was some confusion about whether this Otanes was the same as the Otanes who helped kill Bardia. The fact that the general was Darius' son-in-law is actually good evidence that they are different people. Otanes, the conspirator was married to another of Darius' sisters whose name isn't mentioned by Herodotus. The fact that this second sister was married to Otanes is just about all we know of her. This couple had at least one daughter, Amestris. Amestris is about to be very important to our story, but not quite yet. I'll save most of the details from her when I discuss the harem under Xerxes, because Amestris married her first cousin and became Xerxes' leading wife. Otanes had another daughter— but it's not clear if her mother was Darius's sister or not, because we don't know if that marriage was arranged before or after they staged a coup together. This daughter was Phaedimia, one of Cambyses's wives, who supposedly helped reveal that Gomata had replaced Bardia. We don't really hear about her after the coup, but we can probably guess that she either married Darius to maintain her status and help cement his legitimacy, or at least remained part of the harem in a more general sense as a woman of the palace. This probably put her in a similar category to one of Darius's other wives, Parmas, the daughter of Bardia. Despite all the drama surrounding her father, we know very little about Parmas herself, not even who her mother was. It seems pretty clear that Darius officially married her to firmly tie himself to Bardia if the whole evil magi imposter story didn't work out, and to add just one more connection to Cyrus the Great. Darius had a third sister as well, whose name we actually do know from the Persepolis archives. This was Ardushna Muya, who was married to Gabrius, another one of the seven conspirators. She was the mother of Mardonius and is documented traveling through Persepolis with her husband and son. She may also have been the mother of Darius's first wife. Yes, Darius probably married his own niece. There's no way to make it not weird, but hey, Cambyses married a whole bunch of his sisters, so it's hardly the weirdest we've seen, and it's definitely not the weirdest we'll see in the future. We never get her name but it's entirely possible that this daughter of Gabrius was the product of an earlier marriage, and Gabrius only married Ardushnamuya after they killed Bardia. That would actually make some sense, given how young Mardonius was, but it is equally possible that she wasn't. We know that Darius and Gabrius' families did forge their first marriage alliance before Darius was king, because Darius' first three sons were all with the daughter of Gobryas before he was on the throne. That will be important later, when they compete with Xerxes, Darius' first son, after becoming king. So far as we know, Gobryas's daughter had no daughters of her own, but she did have a sister-in-law. Her brother Mardonius was married to one of Darius' daughters, Artazostra. Like so many of these Shish, we only know Artazostra through her husband. Unlike many of them, there's at least an interesting story about Artazostra. One of the few Persepolis tablets that mentions her mentions that she was traveling with Gobrias, but not Mardonius. The rest of the tablet is just a list of provisions sent with them, but I've seen it theorized that this is a record of Gobryas taking Artazostra to meet her husband for the first time. That would cast some interesting questions on how the ceremonies surrounding Persian marriage alliances worked. Most importantly, why did Mardonius not meet her in front of Darius himself? But it's equally possible that this trip happened while Mardonius was leading an army in the west. In that case, Artazostra was just traveling with her own family by marriage, probably for pretty mundane reasons. More importantly, though, Artazostra is a good way to transition into a discussion of the three most important women in Darius's harem, all of whom are in the list of the most important women in Achaemenid history as a whole. I'd say they're the top three. Now, you may have noticed that this episode has gone pretty long. I feel like all of the more general information about Persian women and their roles is necessary. I could probably cut out this discussion of minor women in Darius's family, but frankly, it's fun, and this would still be aiming at well over the hour mark if I went on to talk about everything in one episode today. So I'm splitting it in two. Episode 40, Heiresses of the Empire, should appear in your podcast feed soon. That's the next part of this episode, and it will pick up the discussion right where I left off at Artisostra and progress through a discussion of Queen Zatosa and Artistine. and the remarkably powerful Irdabama. Before you switch episodes, consider jumping over to Patreon or Lysium FM to support the show financially or leave a review and share on social media to help get the word out about the history of Persia. If all of these minor royal women, their husbands, and the litany of unnamed daughters and sisters got too confusing, you might also want to jump over to historyofpersiapodcast.com and check out the Family Tree tab, where you can see several versions of the complete Achaemenid family tree. See you soon on the next episode of the History of Persia.